thank you, Jesus. Genesis 16. And Abram was four score and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to him. So Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to him. Genesis 21 verse 10. Can we read this together? One, two, go. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for as Christ is revealed, the believer is unveiled. Thank you for the entrance of your word that not just bringeth light, but it actually brings the, the identity of who we are. Thank you for Christ is revealed. Thank you. I drive out every spirit of disturbance. Thank you for there is revelation knowledge available to us. There is understanding. We receive this word that is about to come. And this word does the work that it's meant to do in our lives. Thank you. For in Jesus' name we prayed. Amen. So in the first service, the first thing I said, and it bears repetition here, you need to try and track with me from the start because there are certain things, there are certain foundations I need to lay that if you don't get them when I start, it will be difficult for you to follow the message. Now, the first thing that I want to establish is there is no arrangement, there is no system, there is no mechanism that can balance grace and works for any spiritual results. So in the spirit, there is no output whose input is the balance of grace and works. Does that make sense? So grace cannot be balanced with works. Grace can only be balanced with faith, right? So, when I say grace cannot be balanced with works, where is my reference? Romans 11, verse 6. Romans 11, verse 6. And if by grace, there is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. So grace and works are mutually exclusive. In simple English, what that means is what grace is supposed to do, works cannot do it. Does that make sense? Now, by the way, the title of this message is Grace is More Than Enough, a.k.a. the illegality of the law. That was Pifro's title when he had the message. So I had to use it. Okay? Now, when it says what grace is supposed to do, works cannot do. How do we know that? Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you want to know where, why there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, when you get to read Romans chapter 7, you see it. Okay? So let's just continue from Romans 8. To them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Like I said in the first service, 
this who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, is not an added requirement to your in Christedness. So it is not, you know, there is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Now, to guarantee that no condemnation, make sure you walk according to the flesh and not the spirit. No, that's not what he's saying. This thought after the Jesus is a description of what it is to be in Christ. So if you are in Christ, you will naturally not walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. Does that make sense? Now, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. This is a sanctification matter. I'm not going to go into the details. Verse 3. For what the law could not do. Remember, what took me to this scripture is what grace is supposed to do. The law cannot do it. So, it's telling us here what grace is supposed to do that the law cannot do. Right? So, what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh. God sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not, not in sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Okay? And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So what, is, what does it mean by what the law could not do? Take me back to 3. Again, like I said in the first service, sometimes when you want to understand some spiritual, some, some things in the Bible, look at the time sequence. So when he says what the law could not do, Christ did it. So it means that the answer to that thing must be at some point between the introduction of the law and the cross. Does that make sense? So if you're able to understand the things that happened between the law Right? And the cross. You can then know what the Lord tried to do that he couldn't do, that Christ had to come and do. Now, that is me just giving myself plenty of work. Actually, what the Lord could not do that Christ, that Christ did is on the other side of this same text. Right? So what did he say that Christ did? God's... No, no, no. Take me to three. Leave it, leave it at three. God sending his, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ provided the physical body for God to, to what's the word? For God to pronounce condemnation of sin. So in Christ's physical body was sin condemned. Now, the reason why God had to condemn sin in the physical body of Christ was that Sin was a separation, right? It separated us from God. So God had to find an instrument that, can, that could reconcile us back to him. That's what he did when he condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. So essentially, what the Lord tried to do that he couldn't do is what Christ did, which is condemning sin in the flesh. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, when I talked about the time window between the law and Christ, one thing it will tell you is that for 1,600 years, the law tried to do something that did not work. 
But I put it to you. In 2023, that thing that the Lord tried to do for 1,600 years that did not work, people are still doing it, expecting it to work. Let me say it again. This thing that the Lord took 1,600 years to do unsuccessfully, in 2023, people are trying to do it. Now, if a product is going to work, product managers, product designers, come on, 1,600 years is too long to test the product. If it hasn't worked in 1,600 years, it is not meant to work. So, long and short, what the Lord could not do is what Christ did. He presented a physical body for the condemnation of sin. Now, let us interrogate how the Lord tried to do this. Perhaps it will tell us why the Lord was unable to do it. Right? Give me Leviticus 4.32. Thank you very much. My props man, help me. And if he bring a lamb for a sin offering, this is the law trying to do what Christ did, right? And if he bring a lamb for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without blemish. 33. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin, of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they kill burnt offering. 34. And the priest shall take off the blood of the sin offering. This again, this is the law trying to do what Christ did on the cross that was not successful. And the priest shall take the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. 35. This is where I'm going to. And he shall take away all the fat thereof as the fat of the lamb is taken away from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them up on the altar, according to the offerings made by fire unto the, unto the Lord. Listen, you know, mark that word, unto the Lord. And the priest shall make an atonement for his sin that he had committed, and he shall be forgiven him. So let me, this whole story, what is going on here? like I did in the first service. Let me proclaim who I am. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Mandela, proclaim who you are. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Very well, because this example, when I was thinking about it, I was afraid. So, I am the sinner. You see why I did that proclamation? I am the sinner. I come to the priest with my, what do you call it? White sheep. Spotless white, female white sheep. Spotless female sheep. Spotless female white sheep. Well, the sheep. You see, again, it's too, the description too much. It's just too much work. So, I come, the sinner. This is the righteous one. Now, this guy, the priest, this man, Della, right? <laughs> this man he will look at my lamb if he thinks he's righteous if he thinks he's spotless he will now so long and short my sin will be transferred to this thing this thing's innocence will be transferred to me I live 
an innocent man, free for the forgiveness of sins, right? That his sins are forgiven. They told us that it was for one year. Subscription plan, okay? Now, I live thinking that my sins are forgiven, right? But you know that this system, this contraption, was administered, it was, it was ordained by an angel with Moses. Now, the litmus test of anything godly has to be Jesus. So before you accept something as godly, you must put it through the stress test of Jesus. If it comes out of the test, Jesus, then it's God. If it doesn't come out of the test, Jesus, no matter how godly it looks, it is not God. So, let us hear what Jesus, let's put this thing through the stress test of Jesus. But before I do that, let me tell you what I have a problem with in this arrangement. Is this guy. Now, this guy, eh, he's the eye of God in this matter. So, he's the one telling me whether this thing is holy. But give me verse 4. And the priest, and if the anointed priest sins, so this guy is not even holy. He's not even righteous. So how is he supposed to know if this thing is righteous? Because righteousness is in the eye of the, right, the, 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 the righteous, the person who is righteous. Does that make sense? So if he's not righteous, how is he supposed to know that? So you are beginning to see that. Maybe this thing, there's something not quite right about this thing. Because he too has to, there, there has to be an offering for his sin. Now, the question I asked is, who inspects his offering for sin? Because if he is the person inspecting his offering for sin, he will always say he's worthy. So, <clears throat> so the yardstick for this thing already is messed up. But don't listen to me. I'm not the litmus test of God. Let's listen to Jesus. Hebrews 10. Three to seven. But in those sacrifices, there is a remember, remembrance again made of sin every year. So the first thing is, this thing is giving you sin consciousness. Give me the next verse. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. This thing, it's not possible for this thing to do what it set out to do. Give me five. Wherefore, this is Jesus speaking. When he cometh into the world, he said, what did Jesus say? say Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Give me six. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, thou hast had no pleasure. You don't send this thing. Give me seven. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Again, Pastor Philip, help me. If I miss this volume of the book, bring me back here. Fantastic. <laughs> Give this thing to me in TPT. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, protocol. Thank you, guys. Now, for if animal sacrifices could once and for all 
eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered and the worshippers would have had clean consciences. Instead, once was not enough. So by the repetitive sacrifices year after year, the worshippers were continually... What was the purpose of this thing? To remind them of sin. With their hearts still impure. So you came there, you see now, spent your money, bought white sheep, brought it to this guy, and you left the sinner. Nothing changed. Give me the next verse. For what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? Give me the next verse. So when Jesus, the Messiah, came into the world, he said, since your ultimate desire was not another animal sacrifice, God did not desire this thing. You have clothed me with a body that I might offer myself instead. Give me six. Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice. God has a healthy appetite for righteousness. When Jesus on the cross became sin, God could not look at him. Why? God has a health. His eyes were too righteous, were too holy, were too pure to look at Jesus because he was our sin. Give me. So I said to you, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. The will of God on the sin offering was always Jesus. It was never this thing. That's what Jesus is saying. To go and do your will. And to fulfill what is written of me in the word. Give me this thing in the message. But instead of removing awareness of sin, when these animal sacrifices were repeated over and over they actually heightened awareness and guilt. Punishment. Next verse. The plain fact is that bull and goat blood can't get rid of sin. That is what is meant by this prophecy put in the mouth of Christ. You don't want sacrifices and offerings year after year. You've prepared a body for me for a sacrifice. Hmm. I didn't say this is first service. Let me say it. Now, we know that the basis for all blessings is the forgiveness of sins. Right? We know that their sins were not forgiven. Jesus told us. So how were they blessed? Because there were people blessed in the Old Testament. How was the judgment for sin averted? You see, the grace of God is not a testament matter. It's a nature matter. God is gracious. So what made the law look like it worked was grace was what was working. Even under the law. It was God's grace that was working. That is why they thought they left here forgiving of their sins. Because when they left here and they got the blessing, what would they think? Ah, our sins were forgiven there. No. It, God's grace is what worked even under the law. Grace is not a New Testament um, personality of God. Grace is God's nature. Start to end. Thank you, Mandela. Thank you very much. Hmm. Grace is not a New Testament matter. Grace is who God is. 
Now, like I told Pastor Philip, Philip to remind me, what was written in the books? Give me um, Hebrews 10, 7. Let's see what, what, what is taking us to the next bus stop that we're going to. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. What was written in the volume of the book? So when you want to understand this kind of scripture, right, you have to go and look for the source. Where are they quoting this thing from? Give me Psalms 40 to also convince you, right, that this thing wasn't God, it was grace. Sorry, it wasn't the law, it was grace. This is David. David wrote this psalm. See what David, a king under the law, a king of Israel under the law. This is the custodian of the custom of the law, right? So, if Nigeria has a national custom, the custodian of that custom is our president. And this was the president of Israel who was supposed to own this culture. What did he say about it? Listen. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offering hast thou not required. This is David. This is not Jesus. Old Testament. Give me an exodus. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. So Jesus was quoting his earthly grand, 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 grandfather, David. Now, what is David talking about? When David says, lo, I come, what is he referring to? The explanation is in another psalm. Give me Psalm 50. I will not reprove you for your sacrifice. This is God saying it. What God is saying essentially is, I'm indifferent about this thing. Right? I won't take offense. Or burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I, I won't take offense with it. Give me the next verse. But, I will take no bullock out of your house. If you read this thing in the message, right? Simeon, can you give it to me in the... Fantastic. I don't find fault with your acts of worship. The frequent burnt sacrifices you offer. So it is not these uh, animals he's talking about. It's not they go to church and they were giving God offering. No. This was sacrifice for sin. Right? So take me back to KJV. I will take no bullock out of your house, nor he goats out of your folds. Give me verse 10. This will bless you. I love this. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. So what God is saying is that this thing you are doing, first of all, all these things people are bringing, I gave it to you in the first place. So what that means, so what that means, we've preached, we've prayed this prayer, cattle on a thousand hills, as though God owns the cattle that he will give us to go and sell in our jar market and buy G-Wagon. This is not a financial breakthrough prayer. This is a redemption prayer. So when you say God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, you mean God owns the instrument for the offering for forgiveness of sins. Not that God owns money that he wants to. I mean, that's, that's not, I, 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 if you want to pray, it's up to you, you can't. Right? But what I'm saying is, the context of the animal is not for you to have money. It's for you to have forgiveness of sins. Does that make sense? So, 
Ah. Are you getting blessed? Are you getting blessed? So what was written in the volume of the books? It is that sacrifices written in, that you see in the Old Testament are only valuable to the intent and to the degree that they point to the sacrifice that was to come. That was the only value of all these things they were doing. They pointed to the sacrifice that was to come. In, in themselves, they were not valuable. Right? Now, so when David said, here I am in Psalm 40, he was referring to the Jesus in his loins. Who is the cattle on a thousand hills and who was God's will for forgiveness from the start? So you know, we are very well taught in this church. I cannot just give you Old Testament and call it doctrine. We have to find an x-ray in the epistles. So give me First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, not that guy. Not the, that unrighteous guy. The eye of God on our sin matter that we had was Jesus. Why? He was righteous. Give me two. And he is the propitiation for our sin. So he's the payment. He's the sacrifice for our sin. Not sheep. Not white sheep. Let me even ask you a question. If truly the God that many churches preach is that angry, righteous indignation serving God, do you think it's your small sheep that you drag to him that we calm him down? No, seriously, think about it. You know, my wife is not here, so I can say this. There are certain things I would do to, to my wife. I can, it's not even sheep that I can use to appease her. Let alone God. I, 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 she's a human being. She's my wife. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've reduced God to, you know, just, just born as soon, born Ramsuya, and God will be all right. Now, I need to raise, I need to raise. Now, why is it important for us to establish this grace and grace alone message? Why is it important? I'll give you an illustration. There's a company in America called Apple, Apple Inc., now, Apple is known as one of the most innovative companies in the world. But if you go to their office in Silicon Valley, you will not see, Uncle Timmy, you will not see anything in the office called innovation. You won't see a chair called innovation. You won't see a table called innovation. But when you use their product, you will experience what innovation is. So you can preach what you can until you deliver something, we can't know who you are. So, until you see the product, you can't judge the producer. So, let, let's see the difference in the products between the law and the grace. Give me John 1.17. For the law was given by Moses. The product of Moses was the law. But grace, which is the truth, came by Jesus. So, the product that Jesus produced was grace. So, why should we preach grace? If we don't preach grace, people won't know Jesus. 
the moment we mix a small sprinkling of law, we are preaching Moses, we are calling him Jesus. We've brought Moses into the church of Christ. When Jesus spoke to Peter on this revelation, I'll build my church. I didn't see Moses in that text. So why are we bringing Moses into the church of Christ? By preaching the law. That's essentially what we're doing. And this thing has caused a massive problem in the church because I dare say, if you go to 10 different churches in the next 10 weeks, you will come out potentially with 10 different personalities of God. Because some people will preach, like here, will preach grace is more than enough. Grace and grace alone. You go to another church, you see grace plus works. You go to another church, you see grace plus works plus kingdom. You go to another church, you see grace, works, kingdom, principles. And a... And a... And a mechanism that removes some and adds some to that whole thing. Now, the problem with that is... And it's a very big problem. It's, a, it's something that worries me a lot. We cannot have a church where our God is unidentifiable. Let me, give you, let me give you, let me tell you something. I told them in first service. I bought, took the Revelation Generation book. Took it to someone who has been in church for, I dare say, 50 years, thereabout. Maybe more. He was actually born in church. A PK. And when he read the book, he got to chapter 5, God Does Not Kill. And he called me and said to me, Obina, I think the church should have a meeting. The church, globally. <laughs> Let's have a meeting and agree to preach the God introduced in this book. So it means that this man has been in church for decades, but never really had an impression a, a, a correct perspective of who God is, that is a big problem. That's a very big problem. Because for us to reveal, for people to know God, we need to reveal Christ. For us to reveal Christ, we need to preach grace and grace alone. Not just grace, grace and grace alone. Why? Because Jesus is God. Give me Hebrews 1, verse 2. I don't, I don't have time for the three verses. Just give me two. Give me three, sorry. Three. This is Jesus. Who being the brightness of his glory. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. You see Jesus, you see God. You don't see Jesus, you don't see God. Right? And the express image of his person. So when First Timothy says... God dwells in unapproachable light. Now, Jesus is the God that dwells in light you can approach. Why? Because you can see him. Does that make sense? So you don't need to run around from pillar to post looking for God. Just open your Bible and look for grace. Once you see grace, you see Jesus. Once you see Jesus, you see God. Give me the scripture in the TPT. No, no, no. Um, Hebrews 1, I think. In the TPT. Verse 2. Fantastic. Thank you very much. But to us, living in these last days, God now speaks to us openly in the language of his son. I used 
the example of Nigeria here. Nigeria has over 500 languages. Some people say 525, some people say 5, over 500. Now, you know that we will be in a really bad situation, worse than it is now, if we didn't have a common language. Because let's say tomorrow now there's a meeting between the president and the Senate president to discuss the issue in the Niger Republic. Very important issue. The president goes and is speaking Yoruba. The Senate president is responding in Ibibio. We will not move forward as a country. So what we did to avert this is at independence, we got something called a lingua franca. A lingua franca is a language that is common to people who hitherto didn't have a common language. We chose English language because obviously for colonial reasons. So when the Bible says Jesus or God speaks to us openly in the language of his son, it means that Jesus is the lingua franca of God to us. So Jesus is both the content and the medium of God's communication. Jesus is what God said. Jesus is how God said it. So there is no context of God's communication that is outside Jesus. Give me this scripture in the TPT. But I need to run. So give me... Hmm, sorry, in the message. Whew. Fantastic. If you are an English student, you know that this thing, this grammatical construct doesn't make sense. When you say directly through his son, there is internal inconsistency in that construct. Because if I have three people here, or if we are three people here, I'm God. This is Jesus. This is the believer. Directly, right to us, will be telling Mastercraft, I love you. That's directly. Through his son will be me telling the son to tell the believer, I love you. So I'll say, MVP, tell Mastercraft that I love him. So, when the Bible says directly through his son, the only way that can be possible is if God is Jesus speaking to the believer. That is the only way this thing can make sense. So, God, so when you, when you read the word of God's grace, you have to understand what you are reading. You're not just reading, you know, um, stories about the goodness of God. You are reading the very personality of who God is. You are, so, if you engage the message of God's grace, it shouldn't be different if, if you face God physically. What you see when you read the gospel of God's grace or what, you, the, what it does to you is the same thing it will do to you if you face God one-on-one. -on -one. Why? Because the grace of God is the revelation of Jesus, and the revelation of Jesus is the identity of God. Ah. Philippians 2.6, AMPC. 
who, that's Jesus, although being essentially one with God and in the form of God possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God. This was the example I used in first service. This is a bottle of water. So this thing contains two molecules of hydrogen, one molecule of oxygen, H2O. Thank you. Now, if this thing, right, if you're able to prove to me that this thing contains two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen, this thing becomes water. Regardless of what it was called, regardless of what they knew it to be. Now, this means that if you strip God of himself and remove Jesus, what you have left is not God. Let me, let me make this thing make sense to you. If you preach grace plus the works of the law, what you are doing is you are stripping God and what you are what you are seeing is not Jesus because Jesus is not grace plus works. So you can see, uh, let me, I can't, I need to make this very definitive. You cannot preach grace plus works and see God. Now, will you, can you see the work of God? Yeah, you can. But is it God you are preaching? No. Because God is Jesus. Jesus is grace. Full stop. Now, so if we agree that this is the church of God, right? We all come every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, depending if you're on the mainland. Now, we come here to feed. Who do we come to feed on? On God. If grace is Jesus and Jesus is God, it means that the essential diet of the believer is grace. So, what makes you grow is not that you are eating. It's not the act or the, the, the verb to eat. That's not what makes you grow. If you think that to eat is what makes you grow, when you're on your way home, buy one bag of Gary, chew only that Gary from now till the end of this week, then you will know that eating does not make you grow. What makes you grow is the nutrition in the food. That's what makes you grow. So it's not the verb. It's the now. What are you eating? Now, so when we come to church, there's only one diet that we are supposed to serve from this side and I am supposed to receive from this side. It is the grace of God. It is the message of the grace of God. That is the only diet that we are permitted to eat. So it is not the act of teaching that helps you to grow. It is what you are taught. It is not coming to church that makes you grow. It is what you hear when you come to church. Because the Bible gives us a specific diet that grows the believer. Acts 20, 32. And now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to help you grow. Build you up. And to give you an inheritance 
among all them which are sanctified. Give me Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Now, don't forget what I said. The essential diet in the church is the gospel of God's grace. So who should I be preaching this message to? To the fivefold ministry. Right? Because they are the ones who determine what we eat in church. Okay. So what does the Bible expect the fivefold ministry to serve you? Okay. Let me prove it to you. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. Why? For the equipping, now what is not perfect is the equipping because you're perfect in Christ already. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Simeon, give me these two scriptures. So, this phrase, build you up, in Acts 20.32, is the same Greek word with this word edifying. I think it's oikidomia. The same word. So what he's saying to the fivefold ministry here is, whether you are apostolate, right? Whether you are prophesying, whether you are evangelizing, whether you are pastoring, whether you are teaching, the only thing that you are, the work that they sent you is the message of God's grace. Why? That is the only message that can help you achieve the objective of edifying. You don't have business preaching or teaching any other thing. That's the only thing. So, the balanced diet that helps the believer grow is the gospel of God's grace. When we say balanced diet, we do not mean balancing grace with works. What we mean is that grace itself is already balanced enough. It has all the nutrients that you need to have. Why? Give this thing to me in the TPT. So, Acts 20, 32, the TPT. And so now, I entrust you into God's hands and the word of his grace, which is all that you need to become strong. It has all the essential nutrients you need, spiritually. All of God's blessings. All. You know, I like, I like verses like this that have very, very specific words. Very definitive. All of God's blessings are imparted through the message of his grace, which he, he provides as the spiritual inheritance given to all his holy people. So all of his blessings are given to all of his people. This thing, eh, there's no exclusion. This thing is balanced diets containing all the nutrients that anybody who needs to grow spiritually can ever need. All. Very, very, very specific. So grace is the essential diet of the believers. I need to run. Now, take me to my text. Genesis 21, 8 to 10. Hmm. So... We come to a party here. Because what is actually going on? If you look, if you, if you are not careful, because of the chaos that you see in this scripture, you will forget that this was actually a party. It started out as a party, right? Now it says, and the child grew, that's Isaac. He grew and was weaned. And Abraham 
made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. Give me nine. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Give me ten. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. So why was Abraham having a party? Why did he throw this party? Now the Jews had, and I think still have, four very important customs concerning their children. There was circumcision on the eighth day, there was naming, there was the celebration of the winning, and then there was the celebration of adulthood, bar mitzvah. Okay? Now, why the winning was particularly celebrated is, in those days, they didn't have the kind of healthcare that we have today. So they didn't have pediatric consultants. They didn't have pediatric cardiologists. They didn't have pediatric nephrologists. All those things. They didn't have vaccines the way we have them sophisticated today. So a lot of children died before they were weaned. So it was a big deal if you give birth to your child and the child survives to the point where they can do without their mother. It was a big event. That's why Abraham was celebrating. That's why Abraham was celebrating here. So, like I said to first service, if you grew up in a polygamous home, or if you had a friend who grew up in a polygamous home, there's nothing happening in this place that is, that is abnormal, that is strange. In a normal, in fact, polygamous home is even a, I can't even understand if this kind of thing, this thing, this woman is not even a wife. She's not even a side chick. She's house girl. So it is very, it is not out of place to see this kind of event happening. It's very, very usual, very normal. You know, I had a friend when I was growing up. I told them this story in first service. This guy's niece was older than him. So you know that you are from a polygamous home when your niece is older than you. So he's, so his brother's daughter was five years older than him because his father had children for five decades so anytime I went to visit him this kind of thing was normal if I, if I went to the house and I, they were not fighting ah, man, am I in the right place so this thing, there's nothing about this scripture that is abnormal from a human point of view. Normally, Sarah is not supposed to react this way if this was just a normal story. Because now you say make your husband carry that woman. Do you understand? So this reason I just gave you, <laughs> this reasoning I just gave you is the reason why we think Sarah is the wicked woman in this story. But I'll show you that Sarah is actually the star of this story. Let's move. Now, Paul talks about this thing in Galatians chapter 4. But before we go to Galatians 4, you know, give me Galatians 4.30. 
Now, nevertheless, what said the scripture? Again, the same principles. When you hear, hear something like what said the scripture, go and look for the scripture is referring to. Right. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now, Paul did not just land in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians was the book that Paul dealt with this thing called the law. So give me my scripture in Galatians 1. Let's track how Paul got to 4. Give me in 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel works. Which is not another, but there is, but there be some that trouble you and will pervert the gospel of Christ. He was dealing with this law matter. Texas. But though we, or an angel from heaven, see, Paul is saying that this matter, I don't even care who says it. If it is not, if it is not grace and grace alone, let the person that says it be accursed. Give me my scripture in Galatians 2. So in Galatians 1, Paul run enter the angel. He run enter the potential angel. So when someone is ready to fight an angelic being for a matter, you know that that thing eh, is life and death. Fully persuaded. Give me two. Now, in two, Paul now said, okay, you know what? Eh? Let me tell you people how I do this thing. Right? He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Now, the life that I live, I don't live it by these works that you people are doing. I live it by the grace of him who loved me and gave himself for me. So, you people, listen to me. This is how I do it. That was two. By three, by three, Paul, in, in short temper, don't enter short fuse. That by this time, Paul was angry. And what was the first thing he said? Give me three. Galatians 3 verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. This time, eh, the guy don't vex. Now, see the question he's asking. He says, who has bewitched you? Who do you this thing? That ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth. I need that scripture of that verse where he says, can you, can you finish with the works what you started with the Spirit? I need that verse. What verse is it? Verse 3. It says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, in grace, are you now made perfect by the law, by the flesh? The people still know here. Take us to four. Take us to four. So he did not just, he did not just land on cast away from nowhere. He had been trying to deal with this thing. So it means that when we get to cast away, we need to really investigate what that thing means because it was something that he said when he had gotten to the end of it. So what did he mean? We'll come there. No, give me 30. Fantastic. 
Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out. At this point, Paul was like, get out, get out. Just this thing. Take it out. Let's not even have a conversation about it. Right? Now, we know. I won't have time to go into the details of that. But maybe we should. Give me 22. Galatians 4.22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. So this is explaining what Sarah was dealing with. Right? 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Ishmael. Born after Abraham's work. Or works. But he of the free woman was by promise. By grace. Right? Now, which things are an allegory? An allegory is a story that has a hidden meaning. Right? So, for the things are two covenants. So, what was happening in Abraham's house? Take me back to Genesis 21. So, so, what was happening in Abraham's house? It wasn't one son mocking another son. It was one covenant mocking another covenant. So what covenant was mocking what covenant and why? The law was mocking grace. Why? Give me Matthew 1, 1 and 2. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Physical genealogy, not divinity. Because divinity, Jesus was not the son of anybody. The son of God. Simple. Okay? Now, give me two. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, the agenda of God on any matter is salvation. Abraham was looking for a son to inherit property so that Eliezer would not inherit property. God was giving him a son to continue the line to salvation. So, as important as your property is, Abraham, that is not really God's matter. God's matter is salvation. Now, so why was the law mocking grace? That was the first time we see from the Bible the birth of someone who was in the line of succession to salvation. Because we did see the birth of Abraham in the Bible. So, so this is the physical manifestation of the line to salvation. The moment Lord saw, saw it, and uh, mocked it, you know, wish. Hmm. So why did Sarah so aggressively cast out this thing. Because she's the star of the story. She identified the law. And she said that this thing, today you will leave my house. Why was she so aggressive about it? Take me back to Galatians 4 verse 30. Are you getting blessed? Thought to check. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. What does that word cast out mean? That phrase, cast out. Is the Greek word ek balo. Yes, 
the Greek word ekbalo. I need someone's help here. Now, I can't, you see, English language, eh? there are many things, and I was telling them in first service that the, sorry, I won't, okay, just, I was telling them in first service that the Greek language was very strategic to the expansion of the New Testament because it was a very developed language and it was a very far-reaching language. When Alexander the Great was doing all those his killing and expedition, God had salvation agenda in that thing. Because the Greek man colonized much of the then known world and imputed his Greek language everywhere. So that when it was time for the New Testament to spread, there was a language through which it could spread. Does that make sense? So, when you read the English Bible, please go and look for what, try in the New Testament, try and look for what he's saying in the Greek. So, I cannot use an English, I mean, Antiaia tried to help me. She said eviction, what Ekbalo is. But let me try and describe it using an illustration. Now, this bottle is empty. There is no legal occupant in this place. Right? This bottle has a legal occupant. Right? This water. Now, pour this water into this bottle. Ah, that's fine. Thank you. Now, so this water is an illegal occupant in this bottle. Now, ekbalo is when I aggressively remove this water that is an illegal occupant in this bottle. That's what ekbalo, that's the, that's the best way I can describe it for you. I guess you, I guess you understand it. Now, something that will help your understanding is let's look for how else it is used in the Bible. Give my scripture in Mark. Now, I said, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and ekbalod many devils. So, the reason why Jesus was able to do that is not just because he had power. It's because those devils were illegal occupants where he cast them out of. Because no matter how powerful Jesus is, he cannot cast himself away from me. Because he's a, he's a legal occupant in me. So there needs to be power, but there needs to be a legal basis for the casting out. Give me my next scripture in Mark. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Why? He had power and the devils were illegal occupants. Give me the next scripture. And he had power to heal the sick and to cast out devils. Ekbalo. Why? He had power and the devils were illegal occupants. Give me the last one. The reason why seven devils left Mary Magdalene was that they were illegal occupants in Mary Magdalene. If you know the story of Mary Magdalene, you will know why they were illegal occupants. Because she had a role to play in ministry. So, <coughs> so, Ekbalo, this cast out, 
Now you understand why Sarah is the star of the story. Take me back to Genesis. She identified the law as an illegal occupant in her house. Now, take me back to Galatians 4.30. So when Paul says, cast out, cast, cast out the, the bondwoman, what he's saying to you is that this law matter that did not work for 1,600 years before the cross hasn't worked for the 2,000 years after the cross. In total, 3,600 years. This thing, the reason why it hasn't worked is that it is an illegal occupant in your life of grace. You see, the thing with the law, eh, it's not even about there's no way it can work. It wasn't meant to work. Even in the Old Testament, it did not work. It, it, is, it is not a principle that is meant to work. Now, the eyewitness context of casting out, we saw it in the book of Mark, was casting out devils. In the New Testament, what is the context of Egbalo? It is casting out the law. Now, how do we cast out the law? We cast out the law when we preach grace and when we hear grace. That is why we have to preach grace is more than enough. Because if we don't preach grace as more than enough, we will have a lot of people carrying illegal occupants in, their, in themselves. And like I said in the first service, you cannot use an illegal occupant to give birth to a legal promise. The legal technicality doesn't work. You know, I've come with God's word to you today. Now there's something God has put in your spirit. And the Bible says that the things which appear are created from the things which, don't, which do not appear. So the creative world is the spirit world which doesn't appear. Now God has put something and you know because this word is a stirring of waters in your spirit. You can feel it that God has put something in you that you need to give birth to. I've come to tell you you can't give birth to this thing on your own. You were not created to give birth to this thing on your own. This thing can only be birthed by grace. Grace is more than enough. Hi. You see, as I'm talking to you, I'm also talking to myself. Because there are times I wake up in the night and I, I feel pains in my stomach like I'm pregnant. And I know it's God, it's the word of God that I've heard that is, that is rustling my waters. That is stirring the waters inside of me. And you know that I'm talking to you because that's how you feel right now. Now, we're going to pray. We're going to pray today. I'm going to pray. I don't have time. We're going to pray for three minutes. The first thing I need you to understand is for grace to give birth to this thing, grace has to first shift you to the birth position. Right? Any woman who has given birth will know. Because once the word, once the word comes, once the water of the word comes, 
it is stirring your, the waters in your spirit. Your waters are about to break. Now, any pregnant woman knows that once the water breaks, that is not when to start going to the market. That is when to run to the hospital to take the best position. We'll pray. Second Kings, Round up. Let me show you something. Let me show you something. Simeon, give me Genesis 16 16. Let me land this thing. Let me give you Genesis 16 16. Now, Abraham was 86 years here. Now, when God called Abraham, he was 75. 
God called Abraham was not originally Jew. He was from Or in the land of the Chaldeans. His family moved to Haran. So when God called him, they were idol worshippers in Haran. Grace found his way through idol worship to get to Abraham and call him out. Now in Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, God builds a relationship with Abraham. They were G's. But the moment the law came into his house, leave it, leave it. Genesis 16, 16. No, 16, 16. It was 86 years. The last conversation recorded between God and Abraham was Genesis 15. This was Genesis, Genesis 16, when the law came into his house. Let me show you the next time God spoke to Abraham. Give me 17, 1. So between 85, 86 and 99, the God, the grace that went into the house of an idol worshiper to pick him out was nowhere to be found. Why? The law was in his house. <sighs> you see why Sarah had to cast out that thing? So, I've brought God's word to you. This thing that God has put in your spirit, I can, I, I assure you with all that I am and all that I know, you cannot push it out yourself. Yield to grace. Grace will push your baby out. God bless you.